Our sermon text and first scripture reading this evening comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning at verse 7, and reading through chapter 12, verse 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning at verse 7. Life is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. And now turning to the New Testament, the Second Corinthians, chapter 4. Second Corinthians, chapter 4. Be reading from verse 7 through verse 18. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, 
our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If I say the name David Avery to you, I I doubt many people know who I'm talking about unless you are a pretty hardcore coffee aficionado. Uh, He's the one who started Bulletproof Coffee. A relative of mine is a a big fan of that that coffee. But something I'm pretty certain very few of us know um, is that David Avery is also uh, into biohacking. Uh, It's the idea that you should use uh, present technologies uh, to your advantage in the quest for a long life, that you try to use all these things that you can in order to extend uh, your life. Uh, perhaps some of you take supplements a day, uh, supplements every day, but I'm sure not a comparison to him. He takes over a hundred supplements every day. Uh, in addition to that, he has stem cells injected into the joints of his body. He bathes in infrared light and even spends time in an as- atmospheric a cell trainer. I have no idea what that is. Uh, but it all sounds so hardcore. And you would not be surprised then to hear that he's written a book called Superhuman, The Bulletproof Plan to Age Backward and Maybe Even Live Forever. Now, hearing the passage just read, or perhaps even just a little bit familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, you understand that the author to the book of Ecclesiastes has a, a slightly different perspective on life uh, than David Avery. And in fact, we have a passage here today that is pretty graphic, at least in its poetic imagery of old age. It's a passage that uh, very much describes what it means to get old, and yet it's a passage written to the young. It's clearly a a word that's given to those who are young, with three basic points. In chapter 11, verses 7 through 10, is really the main point of of this whole passage, that life is good. That life is good. You should enjoy it. But then two qualifiers. In verse 9 of chapter 11, that life is judged. And then in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, that life is short. So life is good, life is judged, and life is short. So he begins on this note of rejoicing life is good. He says, light is sweet and is pleasant for the eyes. And perhaps light here has some overtones, as it does oftentimes in Scripture. It has many different ideas associated with in Scripture, and most of them very positive. And you can think of how the Gospel of John begins uh, in terms of uh, the Word become flesh, that in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And as John speaks of the light, it's Christ who brings men out of darkness. Indeed, it says in chapter 8, verse 12, whoever follows me will walk in the light of life no longer walking in darkness. So light has very positive connotations in some places in Scripture, and here it does as well, that this is something pleasant, something good, that the sun is is that symbol, and in fact, quite literally, that which sustains life. It illumines our world. It's, it's light that helps us to see the world that we live in better. And so there's something to be said for a beautiful uh, sunset, looking out across the ocean, but there's something about a sunrise as well that we welcome 
uh, that light of dawn as it slowly unveils all the hiding places of the night. We, we rejoice in seeing the sun. It makes me think of a, a couple songs, that Beatles song, that here comes the sun. And children, go home and ask your parents, what's the very next line? Because I'm not going to tell you. But I would say this, it's all right with me. Um, in the 80s, Electric Light Orchestra had a song called Mr. Blue Sky. And I mentioned both of these songs because what's the tone of these songs? They're really upbeat. We would say they have a, a positive vibe to them. They're kind of light and, and, and fun. And that's the tone of how this passage begins. That light is good. It, it guides us. It, it directs our lives. It brings order. It even uh, shows and reveals the beauty of the world. Think of a rainbow. A rainbow is impossible without light. And so there are all these ways in, in which uh, our days are, are full of, of God's gifts, like the light, that make life more satisfying, that make it more delightful. And so he says in verse 8, if you live many years and enjoy these many gifts that God gives to you, how wonderful that is. And you should. <clears throat> and you should because, and now comes the minor key in the organ, the days of darkness are coming. It was all light and wonderful, but then he turns, but the days of darkness are coming. He's kind of anticipating what he's going to show us in the poem in chapter 12. And these days that are coming, these will be many as well, that the light's not always going to be there, that life will not always be so pleasant, it will not always be sweet. And then, in fact, all that comes to you, whether it's light or whether it's darkness, he says, is vanity. So here's the point. Enjoy life in your youth. Truly, you should. He says in verse 9, let your heart cheer you. Your joy, your, your heart should be filled with joy that God has given to you. But it's not just an option. It's actually a command. And we have uh, five different words here that are in the imperative mode, like in Verse 9, to rejoice and, and to walk. Verse 10, remove and put away. And 12, verse 1, remember. So here's the command. And the, the force of the command is, is saying basically it is a sin not to enjoy these good gifts or not to enjoy them ever or just only sometimes. Now, he's not saying that it's a sin to, to feel unhappy on occasion. And he's certainly not saying it's a sin to deal with depression. That's not the point. The point is, is that it's really inexcusable not to enjoy the good things that God gives to us, not to find joy in them, whether they're great things or, or the small things. We should be cheered by these things and rejoice in them. And so he says in verse 9, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. It's okay to enjoy the world that you see and in your heart to rejoice in these things. In fact, he says in verse 9, get rid of that bad attitude. Notice what he says, remove the vexation from your heart, you should be thankful. And not to be thankful, even for the small things, leads to ingratitude for the big things. Notice as well, there's a kind of urgency on this. In verse 8, he says, the days of darkness are approaching. They're coming upon us. Or he says in verse 10, that youth and the dawn of life are fleeting. And that's why he says, let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Right now, as you're, as you're young, you're probably saying, well, what does it mean to be young? With everybody my age and below. That's what he means by young. But he's really saying, get in there and enjoy it. Carpe diem. There was a, a missionary uh, from Sheffield, England, and she, it was Florence Alshorn, and she was sent to Uganda to be a missionary. She ran into some very trying difficulties, eventually came home, diagnosed with tuberculosis, 
And as she was recovering, she ran a women's college, but then she set up this community called St. Julian's. And all she took in were burnt-out missionaries, retired and weary, struggling with doubt and with darkness. And she had many sayings. And one of her sayings was this, you need to get out there, enjoy the world like a pagan. Now, what she did not mean was go out there and sin or pursue a reckless life. Her point was this, why is it that so many people who do not believe in God seem to enjoy this world that he made for his children and his believers more than Christians do? She was saying, enjoy life. Appreciate what you have while you have it. There used to be a saying that says, youth is wasted on the young. That young people have no idea what they have. And he's saying this same thing. And you should do so in part because he says, consider the fact that the days of darkness are coming. There's this future uh, decline of the body that's coming, which he'll talk about in chapter 12. And you should think of that so you might appreciate how to live now. Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days, that we might get a heart of wisdom. We might look upon our life, not foolishly, but wisely. It's interesting in chapter 12, verse 1, getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit. Notice uh, what he says in verse 1 of chapter 12. He says, remember also your creator. He doesn't say, remember your God. He doesn't say, remember the Lord or Yahweh or the Almighty God, something like that. Remember your creator. And perhaps it's a subtle way of, of his saying, don't ever forget that this world is, is not in random accident. It was made. You have a, a creator. And you're part of that creation, including your body, things that you enjoy. This is a, a gift of God. And when God makes things, he reflects upon it. He says, it's good. When he made us, he said, it's, it's very good. And despite the fact that our world is filled with sin, we look upon our world and it's still beautiful. The ocean, the mountains, the desert, the flowers, the super bloom, freshly amazing. We're still in awe of the many secrets that continue to be uncovered in this beautiful world that we live in and all the delights of it. It's all a wonderful, wonderful gift. And it should be enjoyed while you can still enjoy it. Now, that's the point. He has two important qualifications of what he said. He's given us really the main burden of what he wants to say, but there's one thing that you need to know, that's in verse 9, and one thing you need to remember, and that's in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. There's what you need to know, that life is judged, and you need to remember that life is short. So in verse 9, he says, you can pursue life and the pleasure of life, but don't pursue the pleasure of life as an end in itself. In other words, enjoy life, but don't pursue these things without any sense of accountability. And this is important for us to recognize because we live in a culture where the predominant culture is pop culture, and the nuance of that culture is youth culture. There's no question that in the West we live in a time that exalts the prestige of the young athlete and and that adores the glamour of of the, the young model, that everything in our culture must bow uh, before the, the idol of a youthful body. Everything has to be sacrificed in order to retain the youthfulness of, of our looks. Everything has to be devoted to it. It's almost as if our culture is telling that the very best part of you is your body. And it's clearly the case that some believe 
that it's as if their body was the only thing. And the Bible says that's an incredibly superficial way of looking at your life. Our Savior in Matthew 10 said, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but the one who can kill body and soul. 1 Timothy 4 tells us bodily training is of some usefulness, some. But godliness, and there's the real nectar. That holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. Or 1 Peter 3 tells us what it means to be beautiful. It's that hidden person of the heart, that imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. That's what's precious to God. That's what it means to be beautiful. It's not so much the body as it is who we are within. And so these things have to be put into perspective. So he says in verse 9, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, almost like he's urging that person forward. He says, but as you do this, don't forget that God is watching, that God is judge of these things. In other words, he can go too far with this living life when you're young thing. And on the one hand, it is sinful not to enjoy life at all as a gift from God, but he's also saying it's sinful to enjoy life as if life were your God. We should enjoy pleasures, but not guilty pleasures. So we think of the parable of the prodigal son. He's not a model for how to live. He's a model for how to live it up. If the prodigal son had a theme song, it's by Prince. We're going to party like it's 1999, that sort of thing. And in the Bible, sometimes being youthful is associated with being reckless. We think of Psalm 25, as David reflects upon his life, and he says to God, Remember not the sins of my youth and my transgressions. The transgressions is a word that, that has that nuance and that sense of rebellion. And so he's looking back upon his youth, his mistakes, and, and the rebelliousness of it. And so what is our author saying? He's saying, don't be distracted by the things of this world. As you pursue these things, keep them in the larger picture, that life is a gift from God, but it's, but it's a gift that comes with responsibilities. There's a time for everything under the sun, for every season, Ecclesiastes 3 says, including judgment. And so he's encouraging us to consider, where is your, is your life going, young person? Is it, is it a trajectory of self-indulgence, or is it one of self-control? Are you going to be reckless, or are you going to be selfless? Thomas Manton the Puritan said, Some come too late to their acquaintance with God, but never any too early. It's never too soon to gain this wise perspective. And it's not as if the Bible is, is only negative as it speaks to young people. Remember what Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 4, that there's a great opportunity for, for young people in the community of faith. He says, let no one despise you for your youth. Don't use that as an excuse. Don't give people that opportunity. He says, instead, set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. There's a great opportunity that young people have, and they have no idea the impact they have on older people. When we look upon them and we see that fire in their heart for Christ, when we see that unadulterated love and compassion they have for other people, and we see their conduct of somebody so young yet trying to follow Christ sincerely um, in speech and in, in conduct. So the Bible has lots of messages for the young. But here the main point is, 
is enjoy the life God gives to you all the days he has for you. Just don't forget about him. Know that. Well, the last thing that he says to us is we need to remember that life is short. And again, we're reminded of some of the things that he has said already in chapter, chapter 11, verse 8. All that comes is vanity. Or in verse 10, youth and the dawn of life are vanity. You may live many years, but those days of darkness uh, will be many as well. And so he's saying live and enjoy life and resist those coming days of, of darkness. We think of the Dylan Thomas uh, poem where he says, Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light, the light of life. Push against it and enjoy life. And you want to enjoy this, this gift of life because now he's going to illustrate old life is not pretty. And it's not easy. You want to enjoy this life before, he says in verse 1 in chapter 12, the evil days come. And by evil, it doesn't mean sin. It means before the days get hard, when you have bad days because of your body. Live life until those days before when you say to yourself, I have no pleasure in my life. Getting out of bed is hard. Walking across the room is risky. It's just a plain challenge. And in order for you and I to feel what he's talking about, he pictures it in this poem. It's one of the two great poems in this book. Let's just look at it. He says, Before the sun, the light, and the stars are darkened. And here he's talking about the loss of eyesight. Christ talks about it's the eye that lets in light into the body. That's what it's speaking of here. Or next he says, The clouds Return after the rain. Everybody knows that when you're watching a movie, you get that moment where it's quite begins to rain. It's symbolic of sorrow. Somebody is crying. That's what it's talking about here. The clouds return after the rain refers to those sorrows that return again, even after the tears that were supposed to cleanse you of that sorrow. Here comes that sorrow again. Or verse 3. This is an easy one. The keepers of the house tremble. It's talking about the loss of strength. Those arms that used to be so strong, they're now, they're now shaking. Or he says, the strong men are bent. Think of the shoulders and the back, these major muscle groups that represent the strength of a person. But he says the strong men are bent. He's talking about stooping shoulders. So now leaned over in, in weakness. Well, here's another easy one. The grinder cease. It's talking about teeth. The grinder cease because there are few. He uses them less and less because he's losing his teeth. He can't chew anymore. Those who look through the windows are dim. Just talking about the eyes becoming more and more dim. Verse 4, the doors on the street are shut to loss of hearing. Is if somebody shut the door, no more sound can get in. I'm not able to hear the way I used to hear. Or when the sound of the grinding is low, a loss of appetite, a loss of use of the teeth. Or he says, one rises up at the sound of a bird. It's a loss of sleep. And even a little sound sometimes startles an older person and awakes them. But then he turns it around. He says, the daughters of song are brought low. It's losing one's ability to sing. No longer have the voice that you had when you were, when you were 20. And verse 5, they are afraid also of what is high. It's a fear of falling. And he says, and terrors are in the way. It's a fear of tripping over something. Then my favorite one, the almond tree blossoms. 
It's the appearance of white hair on the head. The grasshopper drags itself along and and desires fail. It's a loss of ability to walk and, and to jump sprightly. And then we come to the end. The silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl broken. These valuable things that represent life are irreparably broken. The fountain pitcher is shattered. The cistern wheel is broken. What once carried and sustained life, this too is broken. It's a beautiful poem describing how everything is slowing down. That so many things are no longer working. And it's moving to the point where it's going to be utterly broken. This is a house that is falling apart. It's describing someone older heading towards their their death, as he says in verse 5 and 7. Because man is going to his eternal home, the dust goes down to the earth, and the spirit goes up to life. Describing how body and soul will begin this long-distance relationship. This is a creature being unmade. This is the creator undoing his creation. What was once assembled so magnificently is now being disassembled. Life is fleeting like a breath. These days become absurd. And notice what he says. Vanity of vanities. We've not seen that phrase since chapter 1. They're like bookends. Have we not made any progress since chapter 1? Vanity of vanities. And the Word of God other places tells us to respect those who are older, appreciate their wisdom as they speak from experience. But Ecclesiastes is saying, as you think of an older person, have a little bit of sympathy for them. And how frustrating it is to have a body that's not working the way that it, it used to work and how frustrating and difficult it is to get old. He's putting it in this poetic way because it reaches down and it touches us And now you begin to understand why some people are into biohacking and why some people want to resist aging at all costs. What's the number one enemy of every actor and actress in Hollywood? It's getting old. And yet this is the word to the young. Not to take life for granted. Life is sweet. And it's a gift. And it should be enjoyed. I want you to notice something with me in chapter 12, verses 2 and following. As you see these words, what does it make you picture? The sun, the light, the moon, the stars, the clouds, and the rain? This is the language of creation. He's speaking about creation coming apart. The creation being disassembled. And kind of the point is that the human body is actually a picture of the wider creation that will all come undone in the end. And in fact, that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 8. He says the whole creation is groaning. It's subjected to to futility. We could say to vanity, absurdity. And it waits with, with longing for its rebirth. It longs for that perfection to become a new creation. It's waiting for the end that comes of the new heavens and the new earth. And it groans, just like this passage describes. And what's so interesting is in that context, in verse 23 of Romans 8, Paul says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. That is to say, he says, 
the redemption of our bodies. That Romans 8 does exactly what Ecclesiastes 12 says, that we are groaning with these bodies that long for perfection, that long to be made new. And so Ecclesiastes 12 and Romans 8 both reflect how creation strains under the weight and even the misery of sin, that life from this perspective is vanity. That when Adam and Eve fell, they drug down all creation with them. All of it was subjected to vanity. That life is truly vexing under the sun, under this cloud of sin. That bodily existence becomes more and more and more frustrating as things wind down. That what the Creator made is being unmade by the consequences of sin. And though our outward body is falling apart, something totally different is happening within for the Christian. And this comes out in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, where Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passing away and the new has come. And what the promises of the New Testament tell us is that the same power that created this world, the same power that that flooded the earth and parted the sea and stopped the sun, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, raised us. It's the same power at work in us, sanctifying us and making us new. It's the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit who gave us that new birth, making us new creatures, giving to us a new heart and and a new life. And that we await the redemption of our bodies, but we do not await the redemption of our souls. That's something that's already begun in us. This outer inner renew, this, this inner renewal has, has just begun. It's the first fruits of the consummation of our salvation, the, the consummation of a perfection. That you and I as Christians, we are not being unmade. We are being remade into the image of God in knowledge and and righteousness and holiness, increasingly being conformed to Christ in his death and his resurrection and taking all on these beautiful signs of those who are are made in God's image and it's being perfected every day. As he says in 2 Corinthians 4, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. It's simply underlining What Paul says in Philippians, that Christ began a good work in us and he's going to bring it to completion. He's carrying it forward, inwardly, in us. That he is shaping us and molding us. He's improving us, reforming us, restoring us. In short, making us better. And he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work in us. That's what he's doing in us as Christians. And we should be encouraged that this passage applies to the body. It does not apply to our soul. Because the new has come. But the best things are yet to come. John says we are God's children now, but when he appears, we shall be like him, we shall see him as he is. As referring to the coming of Christ, That a day is coming when you and I will be glorified, body and soul redeemed, the redemption of our bodies and our souls. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we groan in this tent of this body, but but we look to that day when we will put on that heavenly dwelling, a house, a dwelling made by God. Or think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 
of this body that was sown in, in weakness will be raised in power. What was sown as perishable will be raised imperishable. What was sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What was sown in natural body will be raised as a spiritual body. We look to this day, as Revelation says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Let us pray.